Can't pay the IRS? Haven't filed in a while? Receiving threatening letters? Yeah, it's about to get worse. The IRS is hiring an army of agents targeting hardworking Americans like you. You need warriors on your side. You need Tax Network USA. Tax Network USA employs brilliant strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. For instance, they've discovered a limited-time special offer that the IRS is willing to waive $1 billion in penalties. Find out if you qualify before it's too late. Never call the IRS alone. Let Tax Network USA attorneys handle it. They have preferred direct lines to the IRS. They know which agents to work with and which to avoid. They've resolved over $1 billion in tax debts and offer a best-in-class guarantee. Schedule your free consultation now. Call one 800 245 6000 That's one 800 245 6000 Or visit taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. Taxnetworkusa.com slash victor. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Victor Davis Hansen Show. Victor is the Martin and Neely Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Today, we're going to talk about the six Day war, the war fought between Israel and three Arab states, Jordan, Egypt, and Syria. And when this podcast is published, Victor will be on a trip in Israel. So I thought maybe it would be a good idea to have him talk about some of the major events in Israel for our podcast, which we're recording more than a week ahead of time. So hold on there. Let's go to some messages, and then we'll be right back to talk about the Six-Day War. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with factors, no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. What are you waiting for? For our listeners, Factor is giving you 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month when you use the promo code VICTOR50 at factormeals.com slash victor50. Choose from six menu preferences to help you manage calories, maximize protein intake, avoid meat, or simply eat well-balanced. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Remember, to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month, Head to factormeals.com slash Victor50, that's V-I-C-T-O-R-5-0, and use the code Victor50, that's code Victor50, at factormeals.com slash Victor50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
Hey, folks, if you've been listening to our show, you've probably heard Victor talk about Hillsdale College. It's one of the few colleges in the U.S. still interested in teaching truth. What you probably didn't know is that they have over 40 free online courses. And Victor is one of the professors in three of those courses, American Citizenship and its Decline, based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America, The Second World Wars, based on his book by the same name, and Athens and Sparta, partly based on his book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. Don't you wish Victor would have been one of your professors in college? Well, now you can join him as he covers some of the main ideas of his books with Hillsdale College's online courses, all available for free. That's right, for free. The courses are seven to nine episodes long, and they are self-spaced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. I think I'm going to start with American Citizenship and Its Decline, where Victor explores the history of citizenship in the West and the threats it faces today. Threats like the erosion of the middle class, the disappearance of our borders, the growth of an unaccountable deep state, and the rise of globalist organizations. Hey, start your free course with Victor Davis Hansen today. Go right now to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. hillsdale.edu slash vdh. Victor, the Six-Day War seems to me the most important event in Israel, but at least one of the most important events in Israeli history. And I know that you're on a trip, and your trip will probably take your clients into the areas and into the discussion of this Six-Day War. And I was wondering maybe if you could give us some thoughts on the Six-Day War beforehand, or this will be, of course, podcast at the time that you are in Israel. So I thought it would be a nice little discussion. Since its founding in, in, you know, in May 1948, it had uh, an immediate war for its survival in 1948-49. And then it had the 56 sort of misadventure with the British and the French over Suez, that kind of collapsed the Anthony Eden government when Eisenhower did not support that. So this was the third war, and it was from the 5th of June to the 10th of June, 1967. And the essentials of the war were very clear. Nasser, the great pan-Arabist, had this vision that everybody who spoke Arabic, from all the way from Algeria, Morocco, Libya, to the Middle East in the sense of, you know, Jordan, and even the Gulf would be combined under one pan-government, kind of a caliphate with its headquarters, of course, in Cairo. And it wasn't, I mean, this was, before, this was not Islamicist. This was a secular kind of Baathist, but pan-Arabist, not Baathist particularly, but pan-Arabist. And one of the ways it was going to gain um, credibility was to destroy Israel. And it already gained some credibility because it took credit falsely so for expelling the French out of Algeria. So it was high. It was uh, confident. And they began building up 
all of 1967, their forces vis-a-vis Soviet supplies. And as you know, when the Red Sea goes up northward and it narrows into the Gulf of Suez, then it becomes a Suez Canal on the eastern side of Sinai. But on the western side, there's a dead-end sort of Tehran Strait, T-I-R-A-N, and that goes all the way up. And on one side is Sinai, the north, and then to the east or to the right is Saudi Arabia, and then there's a little sliver. And then Israel has a little tiny sliver at Elat, and that's a very critical port. So that means that Israeli shipping doesn't have to go through the Suez Canal, and therefore it was not contingent upon Nasser's control of the Suez Canal. And they threatened and tried to close that. And that was the ostensible, they promised they would close the Strait of Tehran to all Israeli shipping. And that meant Israel would have no access to non-Mediterranean shipping, i.e. getting into the Indian Ocean. And so they preempted. And when you look at the chart, I was um, 13 years old when that happened. I used to look at the McClatchy papers and they'd have diagrams every day with tanks and soldiers and planes and all the countries that had little emblems and there was little Israel. I'd run to my mother and I'd say, mom, they have 500,000 people and Israel only has 250, 250,000. Mom, they have 700 planes and the Israelis only have 200. Mom, they have 3,000 tanks. And she'd always say, yes, but there's people operating those machines, Victor. Just remember that. It's kind of funny to be out in the middle of nowhere and have my mother and father so attuned as that generation was to foreign affairs. But nonetheless, they preempted. They knew that if they waited for the strike and they had a multi-pronged attack on Egyptian airfields uh, in the Sinai in particular, and they wiped out the Egyptian Air Force. They, They completely destroyed it. And they did that because even though they had a third of the planes that Egypt and Egypt had some very good MiG 21s, MiG you know, 17s, etc. But the Israelis, like the Germans in World War II, if I could use that ill apt comparison, they were able to get three to four sorties out of each plane. They could land eight to 10 minutes later, they were back into it. Whereas yeah. the Egyptians were only doing one or two sorties a day. So even though they had 200 planes, they had four or 500 as far as sorties went. They wiped out all of the air. And once they did that, the Egyptian invasion through the Sinai lost air support. And then they were able to turn their attention to destroying the Syrian air force and the Jordanian was a small air force. And they did it without any U.S. weapons. I mean, they were all dissolved uh, French Mirage jets mostly. And they had some old World War II upgraded Sherman tanks, a few patents, some French and Centurion British tanks, but they were not well equipped. Yeah, I was just because I my understanding was that the Israeli um, Air Force took out all of those planes before they even got into the air of the Egyptian planes, over 200 of them. So the Egyptian Air Force never even got off the ground. And- uh, some did, but they were shot yeah. down for the most part. I mean, there were people, not that they weren't good pilots, that famous Assam or whatever his name was, the Pakistani volunteer pilot. He shot down two Israeli planes. He was a yeah. folk hero for the rest of his life in the Arab world. I mean, the uh, Muslim world. But um, yeah, they and they, they destroyed 
all of the tarmac. They had special French made uh, bunker busting. I shouldn't say it, tarmac busting bombs that wow. made it impossible for anybody to take off to land again. Mm. So they took out that air force. They lost air superiority. They were naked. And then the Israelis in another day took out the immediate threat from Syria and Jordan. And once they did that by day three, they were able to turn their air force from air parity to air superiority to air supremacy, which meant then that when you have air supremacy, you don't have to use your air force to knock down or to, to neutralize another air force. You concentrate 100% of your efforts to destroy ground troops. Remember, everybody, that that is the key of every air force since the history of 1915 onward is air supremacy because you know we don't eat we don't live we don't drink water in the air the only purpose of an air campaign is to eliminate all opposition in the air so that you're not attacked from the air but more importantly you use assets in the air to destroy what counts on the ground and that's what the israelis achieved very quickly it was brilliant and then once they did that even though the Egyptians had, in many ways, they had superior planes, they had superior uh, upgraded T-34 and, and later model Russian tanks. They had uh, anti-aircraft missiles. But after that, the Israelis uh, were able to destroy the Syrians uh, on the Golan Heights. They were able to destroy Jordanian efforts. The Jordanians shelled inside Israel. They, they tried to attack and they were completely failed. They got back into East Jerusalem. They restored Temple Mount. Nobody thought they'd ever be able to do that. They got the West Bank, they got Gaza, and they got the entire Sinai. And so six days later, the Russians and the United States, uh, the United States wasn't directly involved as they would be in the Yom Kippur War of 73, but the West, let's say, and the Soviet Union oversaw a ceasefire. The Arab world was humiliated. Nasser resigned and then by popular claim came back and then shortly later he had a heart attack and everybody thought that was the end of everything. But there were some problems yeah. that, that victory posed for Israel. It had a very small, I think it was 6 million people at that time, and it had enormous territory. And there were a lot of people within Israel who felt that they had now reclaimed greater Israel or biblical Israel, because so many of the toponyms in the Bible were in the Gaza, West Bank, Sinai area, and now in the Golan High, and now it was all Israel. The problem is they didn't have enough population or they didn't have a big enough uh, economic product to securely defend those new areas. And what they thought would happen was they would then go to the Arab world and say, if you negotiate with us to recognize the state of Israel, then we will have a, a graduated concession and we will cede back to you in increments all of these areas, even at the time, the, the Golden Heights, the West Bank, and we will use this to guarantee our integrity. And of course, the Arab world, humiliated, ashamed, wouldn't do that. And so immediately they started a Cold War after the Six-Day War, terrorism. That was the rise of Arafat, et cetera. And this would all lead to the 73 Yom Kippur War. And, and the other thing that was a byproduct, it gave Israel enormous international prestige 
And so the United States got into the picture and they said, you know what, we're fighting in Vietnam and our, our South Vietnamese troops, they just don't fight. Well, if we had an ally like the Israelis, they fight. So all of a sudden we became, the French were eclipsed and they wanted to be eclipsed and we became the main guarantor and supplier of military weapons after the war to Israel. You know, as you narrate that, that war to us, it reminds me that the Israeli Defense Force has a sort of mythical presence, I guess I would say, or a mythical sort of sense of this Israeli Defense Force. And I was wondering if you could comment on how does the IDF rank among world military forces to maybe demythologize it and make it somewhat more real to us? Well, I mean, it, it's a very strange army in the sense that it's, it's numbers in combat, if it's not mobilized, are not that great. A quarter million. At this time, it was probably 200,000. It's surrounded by people that had an aggregate, the Arab world, of a million troops. But what was brilliant about the Israelis is that whether they had 50 or 100,000, they have a reserve system where they're able to mobilize a nation in arms and get up to 500 and now 500,000, now well over a million people. I mean, people they can't sustain that very long. People have to leave their jobs as business people or teachers, et cetera, or drive, uh, bus drivers, but they have an ability to get a and because everybody has military service and they have training during the year, they have people who have been in wars who are civilians who can get right in there and actually be mentors to the regular army of 18 to 20 year olds. So they're deadly in that sense. But more importantly, they have a, a camaraderie where I think the key to it is a private sergeant corporal can say to a captain and they can call them by their first names even. And so they, they violate traditional European and American standards of military discipline and, and chain of command. But out of that, they, they have a familiarity that, that encourages spontaneity and uh, flexibility. And so if you're on the battlefield and an Israeli corporal or he sees something, he can go to the captain or go to the captain can go to a general and say, look, we don't want to have a fixed set static orthodox plan. We, we, we're here. Give us a chance. And so they have a lot of, sometimes it, you know, it can, it can be very dangerous when Sharon kind of on his own just takes off to Cairo in the Yom Kippur war after crossing the Suez, but it, it's a very effective mechanism. And then they have a very unique ability to take traditional armaments and adapt them to peculiar uh, needs and warfare. So they're, even though they don't have the GDP to, of a, you know, a Raytheon or General Dynamics or Lockheed, they can take those products and with, use them, the structures of them to adapt and modify and make them even more lethal. And so they're a force multiplier. And that war, I mean, my gosh, you have 800 tanks in the Arab world in aggregate probably had, I don't know, 25 to 3,000 of them. Yeah. One thing to remember, though, that one of the legacies of the Six-Day War was it created such optimism and high expectations that the Israeli intelligence was such that they would always spot a mobilization. They would always know when the war was there. They would be able to become a nation in arms and preempt if they had to, and they were invulnerable. But people kind of forgot two things when the Yom Kippur War happened. One, 
it wasn't an easy war because of the odds against them. There was almost a thousand Israelis that were killed and out of a very small population bank. And they, I know they killed, you know, 15 or 20,000 of the enemy, but, and it was lopsided, but they lost, I think, four or 500 wounded. So it wasn't as easy as the spectacular six days said. It was brilliant. And then when you look at the Yom Kippur War, I think they lost three or 4,000 and everybody said it was a disaster. But actually, they inflicted far more punishment in the Yom Kippur War. But what I'm getting at is that their expectation is they had to win on day five, day six. And when the Yom Kippur War went to 20 days and they took more than 1,000 deaths, you know, 3,000 plus, then people said, oh, my God, we lost. They didn't lose the Yom Kippur War. If Kissinger had not gone over there with the Soviets, they would have destroyed the entire Egyptian Third Army in about 24 hours. I'm talking about an entire army, not a division. Uh, you know, not 16 or 30,000, but you're talking about 50 to 100,000 men would have been dead. That war had have gone on in the Yom Kippur War, 30 days, they would have destroyed, for all practical purposes, the entire infrastructure of Damascus and Syria in general, and they would have destroyed half of the Egyptian army in the field. And so it, it's kind of improper to say, great six-day war, bad Yom Kippur war. It's more like extraordinary six-day war raised sex expectation that we are invulnerable, that anything slightly less than invulnerable is a defeat. Yeah. All right, Victor, let's take a moment for some messages, and then we'll come right back and talk about why the Israelis wanted to secure Golan Heights, Sinai, and the West Bank. We'll be right back. Have you heard of cancer-fighting foods? The American Cancer Society discovered diets rich in fruits and veggies may actually lower, lower your risk of cancer. Hopefully you hear this and run to the store for five servings of fruits and vegetables every day. If not, you should consider adding Field of Greens to your daily health regimen. Each fruit and veggie in Field of Greens was doctor selected for studied health benefits. There's a heart health group, lungs, kidneys, and metabolism groups, even healthy weight. What your body needs is found in each scoop of delicious Field of Greens. Will Field of Greens prevent, treat, or cure cancer? No, but it's so powerful, it promises at your next checkup, your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. I got you 15% off and free rush shipping. Visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code VICTOR, V-I-C-T-O-R, for your discount. That's promo code VICTOR at fieldofgreens.com fieldofgreens.com. At Just the News, we break the stories others in the media ignore or are too afraid to tell. We did it on Russia collusion, Hunter Biden, and the security and intelligence failures that preceded January 6th. Our stories have real impact and reach because we stick to the facts. I'm John Solomon. You can help me expand our honest, unvarnished, and unbiased reporting by becoming a premium member at Just the News. You'll get an ad-free experience and exclusive member-only access to events, and you'll be helping us Dig up more truth. Join today at justthenews.com slash subscribe. Welcome back. So I these are all my questions, so I don't know how important they are, but um, I, I, I always wondered why is it they, in the peace treaty, they 
took Golan Heights, Sinai, and then the West Bank uh, from the various powers of Syria, Egypt, and Jordan. And do you have some ideas on that? Well, they didn't take it in a peace treaty in the, in the sense that 1948, 49 Israel, was it was just recognized where the war stopped, the armistice, that became the so-called Green Line. And that was an indefensible territory. When you go to the Tel Aviv airport and you see how close other countries are to Israel, Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, it's scary. So what happened was that their enemies said to themselves, Israel has no strategic depth, none. And remember, they had the Sinai. So they're right next to the Israelis. Um, and they had... East Jerusalem, so they're just a few hundred yards from Westford Jerusalem, and they have the Golan Heights. So they're looking down at Israel from from the heights, and it's you know it's seven hundred miles, I guess it is seven hundred square miles. When you have the Golan Heights, and gosh, you're looking right down, see if um, Galilee, and you can be in what I don't know forty minutes, you can overrun Israel from the north. And so you can see what the, its enemies were thinking, a pincer movement, as was envisioned in 67, where the Egyptians are coming right into Israel directly from Sinai, which was their land, and the Jordans are coming right in uh, to West Jerusalem, just a few hundred yards from East Jerusalem. And the Golan Heights is a staging area with the advantages of not just proximity, but altitude. Then it's an indefensible country. And once they were able to save themselves from existential destruction, let's make no mistake about it. Had they lost the 67 war, they would have destroyed every Israeli person, man, woman, and child. They would have driven them in the sea by their own admission. So once they did that, they said, never again. We're never going to do this again. So whatever we have to negotiate, whether, and then remember what's happened over the last few decades, they gave away, they gave back all of the Sinai. They gave back eventually in 2006, all of Gaza. And they said, that's it. So now they have the Golan Heights and that prevents an attack downhill into the heart of Israel. They have parts of the West Bank that give them a little strategic depth. And so that was, that was the idea. And um, who could blame them? I mean, no, yeah. How, you want, you need to have a defensible border. So, but they've been, negotiating with those areas ever since it seems like are they or am i under an illusion that they sort of negotiate with the golan heights maybe not but with the west bank i mean they ended up splitting the um or leaving actually the west bank with jordan right yeah well, first of all they're not under the trump administration they looked at the situation in syria it's, it's a no man's land of hezbollah and terrorists and ISIS and Soviet uh, Russians and the Assad horrific government. And they said, there's no way in the world Israel's going to give back the Golan Heights to those people. And, you know, it's 3000, I think at Mount Hermon, I don't, somebody listening who knows Israel better than I do, but I've been up in the Golan Heights. I've looked at the 67 and 73 where they almost lost it in 73 and it's about 3,000. You can see Mount Hermon, and it gets down to about 1,500 feet. But the point is, it's, a, it's kind of a large area, and it controls 
Israel, but it also controls Syria because they, I mean, in the Yom Kippur War, had that gone on another two days, they would have been in Damascus coming down from the Golan Heights. Speaking of someone that lives right below the Sierras, 30 miles away, it's, it supplies about 20% of the, of the watershed for Israel. And so it's a strategic, very important, and it looks kind of like Napa Valley on the, the foothill side. So it's a very rich agricultural area. It's beautiful. It's, it's strategically irreplaceable. It has water, and they're not going to give it up. Gaza is a different, it's one of the most, I think it's one of the most densely populated areas in the world, Gaza is. And so when Sharon gave that up, thinking that that might be land for peace formula, it wasn't. As soon as he gave it up, they destroyed all the international and American philanthropic, you know, greenhouses and everything. It's a disaster. It's a mess. Egypt doesn't want any part of it. And yeah. so they gave it up. And they, they gave the Sinai it. back too. And they gave the Sinai back. The Sinai is a different story. They gave it back. Sadat got killed for it. But when they got, they did get peace with Egypt and Egypt has honored that peace. So what they got from giving back the Sinai was a strategic buffer zone with uh, the Arab world to its uh, east and south. And so they, they, I know they gave, a, but they, that was very hard to control and it was very thinly defended. And once they gave it back to Egypt and got the recognition from Egypt of its existence, they have not been invaded or attacked from Sinai except for terrorist attacks that is unauthorized by the Egyptian government. And they mm. think you can make the argument that the Sisi government in Egypt is pro-Israel. And I think you can make the argument that the government in Jordan if it's a question between Iran and Israel, they were on our Israel side. Same thing with the Gulf state. That was one of the tragedies of the Abrams Accords, that that did not have a chance to reach fruition, or we would have had eight or ten Arab nations firmly in league with Israel to deter uh, nuclear aggression, which I think is inevitable from Iran. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, there's a issue of the displacement of Palestinians and then Syrians. And I think that's one of the things that continues the argument or the disputes between Arab states and the Israelis is that there's been this mass displacement. In the six-day war, once they took those areas, 325,000 Palestinians uh, evacuated the West Bank and 100,000 Syrians from the Golan Heights. And I was wondering your thoughts on this as a cause of discontent with Israel? Well, it obviously is for the Arab world. And with yeah. uh, that said, nothing in my experience has been more surreal than to be in Israel with an IDF member and driving along uh, what was then the wall. They were building a wall and seeing it get up to northern Israel and, and being stopped by a demonstration of Arab villagers who were demonstrating from any proposed um, concession of 1949 Israel, 48 Israel, back to the Palestinians so that each acre conceded from Israel would be reciprocated by an acre around Jerusalem. You see where I'm going, Sammy? In other yeah. words, hundreds of Arabs were in the street blocking traffic saying, under no circumstances do I want to go back and live under the Palestinian Authority. 
I may be an Arab nationalist, but damn it, I'm in Israel and there's a million of us and I want the protections of a constitutional system and a vibrant economy and a non-corrupt economy, even if it is Jewish. And so that was kind of a striking for me because I thought, wow, what, what's going on when I saw this? So that's one thing. The other thing is that if you look at the number of people who were ethnically cleansed from the entire, I mean, there were probably 300 to 500, the, the numbers under dispute, uh, Jews that were living in Egypt, few in Libya, some in Morocco, Algeria, some in the Gulf states, not a lot, some in Jordan, some in Syria, and they were all forcibly removed and sent packing with nothing. And so they were ethnically cleansed from the Arab world. My point is not that that doesn't happen in war, but why aren't they called uh, refugees? Yeah. For that matter, at roughly, why are we? Why do we call East? We don't use the word East Prussian refugee. Thirteen million people after World War II, who had been in areas of East Prussia and Sudetenland, etc., for five hundred years, they walked back to Germany. Now they deserved it. Maybe you could say because of the Nazi regime, they may or may not have supported. But two million of them died, and so you dump thirteen million refugees, but uh, nobody ever calls them refugees. No. They were assimilated. And where, if you go to Israel today, and I, I'll find out in 24 hours, but I don't think somebody's going to say, I'm a refugee from Damascus. I'm a refugee from Cairo. They consider themselves Israeli citizens. So refugees is a relative term. I mean, one of the things that did happen was there was no Palestine. There was this area that had been taken on the West Bank of the Jordan River from Jordan. And so the Jordanians lost territory and they were willing, they didn't want to have a buffer uh, and a volatile ongoing sore with Israel. So once people fled from that area, they fled into what, once it was controlled by Israel, they fled into Jordan. And once they came in Jordan, they tried to force the Jordanian government to, you know, fight with them and then the Jordanian government and others basically said there is no such word Palestinian you're Jordanian you've always been Jordanians you were just Jordanians that were living near near Israel and they said yeah but we lost our home so now we're going to call ourselves Palestinian and we're different than you and then they had a civil war and at that point Jordan said we're no longer the representatives of the West Bank Jordanians. Now they, they want to be called Palestinian. They are Palestinians. Go to it. You're on your own. And that was one of the results of the Six-Day War. Yeah, it sounds like the whole issue is once again sort of a repeat of how the left treats things. It's not really the issue itself. It's merely a method by which they can gain some sort of I'll say, advantage. I, you know. I think you're right. Um, I'll make a controversial statement. A lot of listeners may disagree with me. But as a general rule, in our planet of 8 billion people, there is no symmetry when it comes to Jews and Israelis. In other words, what is normal behavior, unfortunately, or tragic behavior or extraordinary behavior everywhere else does not apply to Israel. So what do I mean? If you left Israel 70 years ago because of a war, you're a refugee forever. 
and you have claims on, you can dangle your keys like Edward Said and said, this is my home. If you left, as I said, Germany, or if you're right now a Cypriot Greek who was kicked out of Belopais or Nicosia by an, a Turkish invasion, the world does not recognize you. You are a refugee, but the world doesn't recognize that. It's only enemies of the Jews who are refugees. If there's occupied land, occupied land, and that's what Cyprus is, a lot, large chunk, that's not occupied land. Only the mm. West Bank is occupied land. And if um, Israel in an operation in the West Bank kills a civilian, then that's a war crime. In a way, it's not true of other countries that, that commit war crimes all the time. Look at Russia. You see anybody in the UN saying, I have, a, you know, half of all uh, UN General Assembly resolutions were condemning Israel for a while. You see anybody in the UN say, let's have a UN every single day about Russian war crime? No. Or Chinese mm -hmm. war crime? Or the Uyghurs persecuted people? I haven't heard anybody say that. Who were more persecuted, the Uyghurs or the people in the West Bank? And yet mm -hmm. we never hear about the people, the Uyghurs and vis-a-vis -vis the West. I'm not trying to mitigate it. What happens in war, I understand that, that it's terrible. But there's something asymmetrical about Israel that we, we say it's not anti-Semitic, but why do we apply these particular uh, rules to Jews if we don't apply them to other people? I've never understood that. Yeah, me neither. Well, Victor, let's take a moment for some messages and come right back and talk about uh, strategic locations since we've, you know, addressed the Golan Heights in particular with Israel. But let's look at the Suez Canal and maybe some other places. We'll be right back. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Uh, welcome back. So I, I had one more thing as I was looking at this subject here, since, you know, strategic locations, and this goes beyond Israel now, to the strategic naval points in the world today. And so some reflection on what the significance is still of the Suez Canal, for example, or the Bosphorus Straits, or the Strait of the Straits of Malacca and the, sometimes the Straits of Hormuz, but and even things like the South China Sea. I was just wondering if you could give us some assessment of maybe what were the what are the most important strategic points and just how important are they in 
you know, they're naval. And so how important are they today? <laughs> As a Is general, too much? Uh, well, <laughs> too we much? don't have enough time to go into that. Yeah, books okay. have been written on it, but yeah. as a general rule, defines a strategic point, or we could call it a choke point. How about that? You yeah. can choke. You can choke off is wherever China is interested, and that's the end of the story. Basically, if China is interested in the Panama Canal, why is that? Because they can stop all uh, maritime traffic between the American East Coast and West Coast. And by controlling the Panama Canal, which they do now. And believe me, in a t- if we ever got in a time of war, they would shut that off in, in two seconds. Uh, look at the Mediterranean since we've been on the Middle East. Classical strategy, as we saw, particularly in World War II, but even earlier, there was always one way in, you know, it's six miles. Anybody goes to Gibraltar and looks over across to North Africa can see that it's, it's six miles. Remember the movie Das Boot? It was just, it was so treacherous. And that is a choke point. Whoever controls Gibraltar can, can that's why the British don't want to give it up before their lease expires. And once you go into the Mediterranean, there's four or five stepping stones that control north-south traffic. And you have to have control of them if you're going to conduct operations either in Southern Europe or Northern Africa, and they are Sardinia, Malta, Sicily, Crete, and Cyprus. They're, the Western ones are more important uh, because they're closer to Western Europe, and that usually has a greater economy. In the modern world, in, the, in the, the medieval economy, you can make the argument that Crete and Cyprus were more important. But in World War II, to take one example, the British kept on Cyprus, they kept Cyprus, they kept Malta, and the Germans got Crete, they kept Gibraltar, and they kept the exit at Suez. So if you want to control the Mediterranean, the sea between these uh, continents, then you control the exit and the entry at Gibraltar and Suez, and you have a doorway north to south when you have Malta and you have, and they took Sicily, you know, by 1943. And they just said, you know what, who cares about Crete once we, we already have Cyprus and now we have Malta, we have Sicily the, and the Germans are not going to be supplied in Algeria, Morocco, they're just not going to be supplied anymore by 1943 because they've got to go over the airspace or the sea space of Malta and they're never going to stop that. The British will stop that and they're not going to get out. They're not going to be resupplied from occupied France because they have to go through Gibraltar and they're not going to import oil or get any imports coming up from the Red Sea because of Suez. That's a good example of why there are choke points. And you can see why the Chinese are very interested in these harbors. They can't do much in Crete because there's a huge NATO base. There's, an, there's a big base in Sicily. But they, re- they control the port of Piraeus. And they have installations in Naples. You know, peacetime, supposedly, they're building infrastructure. Straits of Hormuz are another question altogether. To get into the Persian Gulf, you got to go right under the nose of Iran. And that was one of the reasons, and that's where 40% of the world's oil comes from. And so if you're going to worry about some crazy government in Iran shutting off 40% of the world's oil supplies, then you better have a, either an Iranian 
ally like the Shah, if you lose him, then you better detour an enemy like the theocratic government there. Because you remember that 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 point of land that just it just sticks right. It's like a mountain. You have to make a curly cue to get around it, and it's very easy to shut off. Kind of ironic now, at least before Biden took uh, office, that the United States had kind of made that irrelevant for us, us because we were completely self-sufficient in oil and natural gas, and that was increasingly of interest to the Chinese and the Europeans. Our interest was keeping it open for the Europeans to continue to import oil and for the Saudis and our allies in the Middle East to be able to export oil and have vibrant pro-American economies. And then indirectly protecting China's oil imports. But China's very worried about that because as long as we're oil independent, you know, you can see in a war with China, we could cut off their 40, you know, it's about 40%, 35% of their imports. Yeah. Yeah. Most of those come out of Canada, don't they? The imports to China. Of a lot oil, of it does. I, believe. I don't know the exact yeah. percentages, but a lot of it comes from the Middle East. Yeah. All right. Well, Victor, I know that was a perfect answer for a very broad question. I really thank you for that. I know your listeners, thank you. Um, and we're going to call it the end of the day for this Saturday on May 28th. This is being recorded way before, but I think it'll be perfect for a Saturday weekend edition. So thank you, Victor. Thank you. And thank everybody again for listening. And yep. I am going to be back to normal so I don't have brain fog and these uh, sudden, <laughs> I don't know what they are, blank outs I do once in a while on this podcast. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody notices a blank, blank out, so you're okay, Victor. Okay, I can't. All talk. right. Thank you. This is Sammy Wink and Victor Davis Hanson, and we're signing off. Hey there, it's Amanda Head, and I am thrilled to introduce to you my new exciting podcast, Furthermore, with Amanda Head, broadcasting weekly from sunny Los Angeles, California, and brought to you by the dynamic Just the News Podcast Network. On this fresh and engaging podcast, I delve into the latest news with a little bit of a twist, exploring the furthermore of every story. But this isn't your typical run-of-the-mill news commentary or politically charged program. I interview a diverse range of guests, including business leaders, entertainers, musicians, educators, experts, politicians, and many influential figures from both the United States and around the world. So why not make your Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays a little more interesting? Tune in on your preferred podcast platform and discover furthermore with Amanda Head on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And don't forget to hit that follow or subscribe button and be sure to download the latest episodes. I can't wait to have you join me on this exciting journey.